We have been working our way through Matthew and Luke through the pre-Markan material, the nativity stories and all the other material that comes prior to and independent from Mark. We have now reached the point where we hit Mark as the source for Matthew and Luke. So now we shift, and for the rest, until we get to the post-resurrection occurrences, for the rest of our time, we will be using Mark as our principal guide. So turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Because we're going to use Mark as our principal guide and balance back and forth between Mark and Matthew. At first we're going to do it more extensively to get a taste of the differences between the three and their similarities. Eventually we will be bouncing back and forth selectively so that we pick up the principal differences between Matthew and Luke vis-a-vis Mark uh, in all of the characteristics. So today we're going to start with the baptism of Jesus story as found in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And I have no idea how much we'll get done today. I have brought some supplemental material to look at. I don't know if we'll even get to that today. So let's go ahead and begin with Mark Chapter 1, verse 1, no review for a change. And uh, actually, that will probably be the only time that we won't have a review. So, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Greek, that sounds like this. Arche tu euagelion Jesu Christu, huiotheu. Euagelion is the Greek word for good news or gospel. The proclamation of the good news. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. Who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Note, he begins with the citation from Isaiah. Reaching back into the messianic expectation of the Jewish people. Now this is written to the church in Rome, to a mostly Gentile but some Jewish Christian elements, mostly Gentile church. And yet he feels free to cite Something from the Old Testament, from the Greek Old Testament, from the Septuagint. A very popular passage, by the way, out of Isaiah. Notice the proclamation. I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now right there in verse 5 is a little interesting point that can be made. And it's a characteristic of both Hebraic and early Christian articulation. 
where he says, And all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. Now, do you think that's literally correct? No, not literally. Literally speaking, if that is literally correct, that means the chief priests and all the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees, all the people of Jerusalem are going. No, that's, that is called Semitic hyperbole. It is found throughout the Old Testament in many places, and it is a characteristic also of Mark's gospel especially. It reflects speech patterns. Like what one might hear when someone would be speaking, they would often use these kinds of turns of phrase. We do it too. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Really? No. I'm starving to death. Just one look at me shows that's not true. We say these kinds of things even in English today. We inherit the practice from the, from the biblical root that we have been taught from our cultural root in Christianity and in Judaism and the practice they had of making their point by stretching it to the extreme. We do it a lot. I was going to say we do it all the time, but we don't. That's, that would be an example of the very thing I'm talking about. We don't do it all the time, but we do it frequently. And that much is true. Here's an example of it. This means that a whole lot of people, a lot of, not a, not a trickle, not a little bit, not just a tiny little segment of the community, but a good cross-section of the Jewish community living in Jerusalem and in the Judean countryside, we're actually coming down to the Jordan River for various reasons, mostly religious reasons, and we're being baptized by John the Baptizer. And that is the point that is being made here. That is the point that Mark is making, and it's probably the way in which it was articulated and which Mark is here quoting. You know, if Peter is the source for Mark's gospel, it could have been that, G that P Peter would start talking about the ministry of Jesus in that way. Uh, the whole city would come out to see John the Baptist. All right? Kind of like that. Now, John was clothed. Oh, wow, look at this. He needs to go to men's warehouse. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair. That's a nice looking jacket. Camel hair jacket. With a, a very thick and coarse. Ugh. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist. Look at this. And he ate locust and wild honey. Talk about it. just a wonderful, nice appetizing brunch he had. <laughs> locust and wild honey. <coughs> A wild honey might be all right on a sofa but not on a locust. But it made the locust taste good. So that's why I put honey on it. They were nice and crunchy, and it just sort of gave it a sweet taste. Yeah. Chocolate-covered ants, honey-covered locust. Yum, yum, and yum, yum, yum. Mm -mm. Uh, one second. <laughs> he proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. That's interesting. The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. You know what's included in that statement, don't you? 
the assumption that he has some power. <laughs> More powerful than I. There must have been something going on here since he was very simple, ate you know, disgusting like food was not particularly yeah. the most wholesome person in the world. Not somebody you want to bring home to meet mom. I mean, no, I'm sorry. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, he's not the most charismatic in the traditional sense of the term. And yet people were being drawn out to him. Were being drawn out to hear him, to be baptized by him. And at this time... Baptism in the Jewish practice was a ritual cleansing that could be repeated again and again and again and again. There were certain Jewish communities that did it every day. It was a ritual purifying event that would be practiced to mark, and for most people, would be practiced to mark a new beginning or a change in how you're going to live your life. Okay. I'm going to play a little ignorant. Where did John get his authority to forgive sins? Um, How did that come about? It doesn't say. Actually, it doesn't say that he does that. Uh, that it's it's his sins. Right, but it doesn't say that he, he does it. Look, it says, the one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He came proclaiming a, bapti a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right. Not so much that he forgave them, but that the act of the person repenting and being baptized brought with it a form of forgiveness. When you turn away, first of all, what is the meaning of the word repent? Who knows? Straighten up your act. <laughs> well, literally, it means to turn away, to turn back. To turn around and go the other direction. Yeah. You're repenting one direction, you repent by turning around and going the other way. Mm -hmm. And it comes from Middle English. And it reflects a change in what you're doing. Well, if you truly are changing what you're doing, then what would flow from that change in what you're doing is forgiveness for what you had done because you've recognized its error. And you symbolize that reorientation of your direction by being baptized. That's the concept. So I wouldn't say that he assumed within himself the authority to forgive, but rather he was calling people as the prophets did to repent and thereby through the, through the process of repenting and symbolizing that repentance via baptism, thereby being forgiven. All right. Now, we take it multiple steps further when we talk about baptism for the remission of sins. We, we have a sacramental understanding thereof and the calling of all Christians because Jesus is going to tell everybody to forgive. And seek within the community of faith the authority to forgive sin. Not just the sin committed against you. But sins committed against God. Roman Catholic Church seeks that authority only within the apostles and their successors. Most Protestants would start there and then from there extend it to every member of the family of faith. All have that ultimate authority to forgive 
sin. Is sin committed against you by someone else? Absolutely. Even the Roman Catholic Church agrees with that. And the sin committed against God or against someone else. And that takes the authority of Jesus Christ, absolutely, and we generally proclaim, and we'll see as we read it in the Gospels, that that has been proclaimed that we are called to do that. But not yet. That hasn't been stated yet. And I don't read there that he himself forgave sins. Instead, he, he, he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. He can't, he's not even worthy to, 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 un, to move the guy's shoes. Is what he's saying. That's, this is someone so far above him. Whom he has come to prepare the way for. Someone who's so far above him. He's not, he's not worthy to untie his, his sandals. Wow. I have baptized you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Any other observation before we jump over to Matthew? Well, I envision baptism as immersion here, right? Could be. It doesn't say, does it? Mm -mm. But I've always envisioned that in the River Jordan being baptized. Where, well, where was Jesus baptized? He was in the River, River Jordan. Jordan. The River Jordan. And depending on the time of the year, the River Jordan would be a creek or it could be a rushing river. Especially in flood stage. But it could be a thin little creek. Which to get all the way underwater, you'd have to, you know, crouch down, lay on your stomach to be all the way under. And so it would just depend on the time of the year as to what the Jordan River was doing. Um, the word baptizo, which is the Greek word used here, means to submerge, means to plunge into. The problem is, is that in the Greek language, that particular word means to plunge into or submerge and leave there. Oh. Baptizo does not include removal. Baptizo means to plunge into and keep there. When you are baptized into this new way that you're living, it is expected you're going to keep doing it, not that you're going to come out of it and stop doing it. When to, to move into the Christian world, you are baptized into Jesus. You stay in Jesus. You don't come out of Jesus. So baptism, baptizo, means to be plunged into and stay there. The Titanic was baptized in the Atlantic Ocean. It went in and stays there. All right? It mean, it, it, unfortunately, to literally do that to human beings, you would have to drown them. Uh, we don't drown people by baptism. So we have split the meaning and say we plunge into and then draw out of. And then we symbolize the drawing out of as being the, the plunging into is plunging into Jesus' death and the drawing out of as coming up in his resurrection. And we symbolize his death and his resurrection in that way. That is a, both a Pauline and a post-biblical interpretation of baptism. 
plunging into Christ Jesus is a Pauline understanding. Rising with Christ in his resurrection is a Pauline understanding. But connecting, plunging into water and raising out of water with that plunging into Christ and raising up in his resurrection is a non-biblical Baptist Reformation era understanding of baptism. Whereas, literally speaking, baptism is to be plunged into where you stay. Is it talking about the sin, staying in the water, carried away? Stay in the new relationship with God, the new way in life with God, the new existence. But since you don't want to stay there and drown, you do come back up. You do come back up. So it's an imperfect analogy. All right? It's an imperfect analogy. There are root words. The root word for baptizo mai or baptizo is bop. And it has, in other words, are formed up from it in Greek. Like to wash, to bathe, to cleanse. And so those other meanings, particularly to wash, bathe, and cleanse, have, have a greater strength than the literal word to plunge into. And theologically, we understand baptism as one thing, which we then externally express through multiple means, either through immersion or sprinkling or pouring. Are there other rivers close by the Jordan? There are tributaries, but there is no other well, major river. Is this is why everybody came to the Jordan. Principal, it was the only river to, to go and bathe, to clean themselves, and so forth. It was a principal source of running water. Through the wilderness. So if they were cleaning themselves with water, he said, hey, you're going, I'm going to clean you with water, but Christ is going to clean you with the Holy Spirit or whatever. So really it was a place to go to bathe, to clean yourself. And that cleansing then brings uh, with it theological manifestations, uh, uh, aspects which are applied. And now the Hebrew conception of baptism is literally to purify. Baptizo is a Greek word that's being used to stand for that Jewish conception. You have to remember that. What kind of baptism Jesus received is questionable. Some of the early artwork shows Jesus standing in water up to his knees and John the Baptist picking up a bunch of it and dumping it over his head. That's one of the symbols. And when you read the event, as we will do, it's not certain that he goes all the way under and comes all the way up. And you can get into all sorts of debates about what kind of baptism is real baptism. In my opinion, real baptism is being plunged into Jesus, period, into line. Be it done through immersion, pouring, sprinkling, be it, well, be it done with a literal external expression at all. And I, What's important is being plunged into Christ, living your life in Jesus, and all that that means in terms of how you treat other people, how you live towards others, how you live towards your family, whether or not you're going to be a peacemaker following the Prince of Peace. I think that's very important. That's part of that repentance and turning and going the other way. But we're way off topic. Let, let's, 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 let's read in Matthew. Let's read the parallel in Matthew. Having read Mark, let's read the parallel now in Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. 
Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his weight, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now that's, that's interesting. Let's stop right there for a moment. This, you notice what Matthew did with what he pulled from Mark. Remember in Mark verse 5. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. But in Matthew verse 4, verse 5, then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him. And all the region along the Jordan, people from all along the Jordan River, people from all throughout Judea, people from Jerusalem. He's, he's adjusted it slightly, hasn't he? Okay, let's keep reading. But when, Matthew verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism... Now, who are the Pharisees and Sadducees? That's a tough one. When you think about it, you kind of know, but, 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 but can you articulate it? Well, one believes in the resurrection. Um, and one? The Sadducees. Okay. The, the Pharisees are the higher, the, higher caste. Not quite. The, the Pharisees were the lawyers. They were those who studied the law. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. They were a newer religious denomination. They were the ones who ran the synagogues. The Sadducees were the religious denomination of the Jews who ran the temple. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were an older movement within Judaism, reflecting more the Levites, and, and, had, and, and were more oriented towards the sacrificial system, where you would sacrifice animals to remit sins, as opposed, not that they ignored the law, but that that was how they were oriented, whereas the Pharisees were more oriented towards studying the law. They went and sacrificed in the temple as well, but they preferred to study the law, and they developed a synagogue system to enable that anywhere. Okay? You can kind of think of similarities here in this way. The Sadducees are like Roman Catholics who have their focus on, on the sacraments and the Eucharist. Whereas the Pharisees are more like the Baptists who have their focus on, uh, on studying the Bible. Okay, Now that's, that is an extra gross oversimplification and, and wrong in many respects. But it kind of gives you a difference you're talking about two different denominations of Judaism with a different emphasis in how to go about living your life. Well, they both come down to hear John the Baptist. But when many Pharisees and Sadducees, but when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, and, and the, by the way, the way to remember that, 
Pharisees believed in keeping the law, therefore they were fair, you see. <laughs> and, the, and the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, therefore they were sad, you see. <laughs> All right, that's really bad, but it works. You'll never mess it up. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. I love that. You brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones. God is able to, let me rephrase that, I just read it wrong. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Wow. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. You're about to get chopped down, guys. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Why is... Now, look, this is, this is not in Mark. Is it? You see that yet? I don't see that here. This is something that isn't in Mark. It's in Matthew. Now, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were principally opposed to Jesus and were heavily involved in laying the charges that eventually got him executed. So there was a conflict, serious conflict, between the early Christian movement and the Jewish leadership. So much so that in in second century copies of the Mishnah, which is the Jewish commentary on scripture and on the religious life, you find references to Christians, nasty references to Christians. And you find echoes of that in, in Christian writings, nasty references to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Of course, by that time, the Sadducees had all become Pharisees because the temple had been destroyed. So their way of religious life had gone away. So they all became Pharisees. So they just became one. One, one denomination. And there's just this nasty antipathy back and forth between the two. And you see that reflected here. Matthew comes from a Jewish Christian community that would have lived in next door to Pharisees and former Sadducees. Mm. So there was going, there would be some hostility, some real hostility, and you see it reflected here. A hostility that is born out of the negative response of the Jewish leadership towards Christ and towards the Christian community post-resurrection. And yet we see it articulated here. John the Baptist noticing some of these Pharisees and Sadducees. And in that context, we can say this much. Pharisees and Sadducees don't think they need repentance. The Pharisees study the law. They know what's right. They're living the right way. What are you coming down here to get baptized for? You think you're doing right to begin with. And you Sadducees, you get yourself clean by going to the temple and sacrificing an animal. Why are you coming down here to get baptized to repent of your sin? You don't think you've got any to repent of. Neither of you do. So in that context, it works. 
What are y'all doing? Look at look at what he says here. You brood of vipers, you bunch of hypocritical snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You, 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 you don't think you need to flee. You don't think there's going to be a wrath. Not against you. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. You're not even doing what you need to do to be able to repent, which is to recognize that you need to. They just came down because they were curious. They were curious. They wanted to see a show. They wanted to see a show. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. Look, we don't need to repent. We've got Abraham in our ancestry. The Jewish, the fight between Christianity and Judaism at this point in time, one of the characteristics of that fight was the Jews, and frankly Jewish Christians, were saying, we know best because we have Abraham as our ancestor. You dirty, stinking Gentiles, you don't have that, so you should listen to us. And in the early church, that became a serious problem and typified the whole fight in the Pauline communities between the Judaistic Christians and the Gentile Christians. With the Jewish Christians saying, you should listen to us, you dirty stinking Gentiles, because we have Abraham as our ancestor. We follow the life of Moses. We know what we're supposed to do. We know what you should be doing. You get chopped on, stop eating all that unkosher food, start wearing the kind of clothing you should be wearing, and stop being Gentiles. And that conflict exists, you know, existed even within the Jewish community between Jewish Christians and Jews. All right. When was Matthew written? About 70 to, well, about 80 to 85. It was written in Antioch or Damascus in Syria, nor where the refugees from Jerusalem would have been deported to by the Romans. Mm -hmm. And when they would have been picked up and dropped in Antioch and Damascus, forced out, lock, stock, and barrel, what little they were, whatever they could carry, they, they took and they left. And when they left, they left everything else behind and the Romans destroyed it all. And so there was a whole lot of anger in this community. And the Jews had to become one denomination to survive. And since they didn't have a temple, the only readily pre-existing structure was the synagogue structure. And the synagogue structure is what Judaism coalesced around and still coalesces around today. And so Phariseeism won. And all the other denominations of Judaism went bye-bye. Or their best elements got assumed into Phariseeism. But for the most part, it was Phariseeism. And there was therefore no room for Messianic Jews like Christians. Mm -hmm. You had to give up your faith in Jesus and come back to Judaism. And any Gentiles who've been converted, fine, you got to become full-fledged Jews. And they accepted that. But there were things you had to do. And so by 80, 85, somewhere in that range, all of that was the case. All of that was the case. Um, verse 11 I baptize you with water for repentance but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me I'm not worthy to carry his sandals in Mark he's not worthy to untie the shoelaces <laughs> uh, not worthy to untie the thong of the sandal here he's not worthy to carry them wow I'm not worthy to carry his sandals he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
Notice in Mark, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. <laughs> would make for a very interesting ritual in church if we use fire wouldn't it would not be, we, we all be you know was it hot coal fire walkers in India I mean yeah. where, where did the fire and brimstone term come from uh what Belton <laughs> actually there is there are references to you know fire and brimstone and hell and the burning trash pit of Gehenna in the Hinnom Valley next to Jerusalem. Yeah, that's yeah. Hell is going to be like the throne. Eternal life for those who do not accept the way of Christ, who are not sheep but goats, is going to be like living over there in that trash pit where all the stuff's been burned. Uh, and that's what he's saying. And then people literalize it. That's the problem. Um, but we'll, we'll hit that sometime next year I guess I don't know how long it takes to get there I baptize you with water for repentance but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me see that attitude that idea is, is, is still there in Matthew I am not worthy to carry his sandals he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's going to get rid of all the junk, all the weeds, all the stuff that you don't want. He's going to winnow it out with his winnowing fork, which He's is a metaphor. Talking about, well, okay, that's an excellent. Is he talking about people? Or is he talking about elements within people's lives? You can take it both ways. Individuals who are chaff, but to me that becomes so judgmental and so useless to the rest of us, to most of us, I pray, to all of us. Instead, it's talking about the elements in your life that are like weeds or the elements in your life that's like the chaff. And he's going to come in and root it out of you. Hence, repentance and baptism for the remission of sins. That process of changing your life, of repenting, involves weeding, getting rid of it. And Jesus has the metaphorical winnowing fork to do it. Yeah? Is this one of the passages that historically has been used to justify Christian oppression of Jews? I know that, that Matthew is often viewed as, as being a very, well, is sometimes viewed as being a, 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 interpreted as being an anti-Jewish gospel. It's interpreted as being an anti-Jewish gospel because it was written so close to the Jews by Jews mm -hmm. who are Christians. Right. That's the weird thing. It's written by Jewish Christians for Jewish Christians and Jews they're trying to convert. Mm -hmm. And yet it happens to be quite harsh mm -hmm. towards non-Christian Jews. Mm -hmm. There are other passages that are stronger, mm -hmm. I think. This here hints at it, I guess. Mm -hmm. Certainly this attitude, you brood of vipers speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of the people, if the leaders are broods of vipers, the people probably are too. Mm -hmm. 
At least that's how it might get interpreted. Right. All right. And of course, now we're looking at some of these passages, having had the historical experience of things like the Russian pogroms at the turn of the 20th yeah. century, and then the whole Holocaust or Shoah, as the Jewish people prefer to call it. Mm-hmm. And now we're dealing with what's happening in the Middle East still. So there's there's a lot of history. That a lot of history, a lot of painful stuff to deal with in that respect. The qu- nothing of the Inquisition. And the oh boy, <laughs> yeah, don't go there. Not right now. We'll go there soon enough, as uh, it is. Nobody um, expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> bring out the comfy chair. Eh? <laughs> um, you know, I think Gloria's question is all, is spot on. How do we un- and reflects the question and how people were reading even Mark and that resulted in Matthew. The question is, is this people that are getting weeded out or is it elements within people's lives? The more spiritual you go, the more it becomes elements. The more literal you go, the more it becomes people. Matthew trends towards more spiritual. All right? Whereas other interpretations would, would trend, like Luke, would trend more towards literal. I, huh? I like the spiritual better. Me too. <laughs> uh, and, and most people today, when they read this, will say, we, here's a good way to read this. We all have chaff in our lives that we need to remove. Let's let the grace of Jesus Christ, the means of grace, which are his winnowing fork, work through us to winnow out the chaff that doesn't need to be there. Now, that sounds wonderful. It's actually a pretty good interpretation of the passage. I've preached that myself. I love it. It's a great way of doing it. It's not the only way to understand it. It's not the only way to understand it, to interpret it, or imply it. Nor is it necessarily the way in which Matthew intended it. I think he may have. Intended it to be which? I think he may have intended it literally. In the, con- in, in the conflicted character of the battle. Mm. Literal battle between Jewish Christians and Jews. I think it was often understood, and Matthew may well have understood it literally. But I bet if somebody had pinned down this guy and said, now do you really mean that only literally or is it true that all of us have this kind of winnowing? He probably would have gone the interpretive route and say and said, oh, I think we all have chaff and needs to be worked out of us. But those dirty, stinking, rotten Jews over there who refuse Jesus, they're going to get winnowed out. <laughs> the brood of vipers. I'm serious. I mean, it sounds... It, it, it almost caricatured, yet that was the nature of, of the conflict that existed at the time. Well, didn't even Jesus, when he chased the money changers out of the temple, the same thing, he chased them out of their sins, but they were as people who chased them out. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that is interpreted multiple ways too, both literally and metaphorically. Let's go to Luke. And, and, and read the same segment. We're not going to read the whole thing in this depth. Luke chapter 3 verse 1. That's actually rather rather fortuitous that it ended up that way. In the... Yeah. There's more pre... Again, Luke is more complete. He says more. Let's put it that way. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius... 
When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, not Herod the Great, one of his sons. And his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, not Texas. <laughs> During the high priesthood, of Annas and Caiaphas. Oh, okay. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. More information about John because we have the backstory in Luke about Zechariah, remember? Verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the prophet of as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And he keeps quoting every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke doesn't cut it off where Mark does. He adds more. He's gone and taken a look in the Septuagint that Mark is quoting from and added to it. Wow. Matthew doesn't do that. You would kind of think Matthew would do that since Matthew is more the Jewish guy. But Luke, taking his cue from Mark and being the researcher he is, has gone back and read He's gone back and read what Mark used here and expanded it. John said to the crowds, now you could do a theological study on that citation from Isaiah. Well, he includes in and all flesh uh -huh. seed of salvation. Yeah, yeah he does. Uh, it expands it even more. It's not just Jews. In all flesh. There you go. That may actually be part of his reason. Mm -hmm. You could go in depth like that in this citation. But let's keep going. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Now notice all of this business about all of the people. All, the hyperbole has been dropped. In a sense. He has gone into all the region around the Jordan. That's, Luke has adjusted what he got from Mark and removed the hyperbole, the exaggeration. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, and it, notice, not the Pharisees and Sadducees just, the crowds. He's saying this to all people. Now you've got to remember, would these Gentiles who's, who are reading or hearing Luke know who Pharisees and Sadducees are? Not yet, probably. They'll find out about them a little bit later. But at this point in time, they don't know who they are. It's assumed by Matthew that his readers know who they are. It's a part of their culture, certainly of their memory. Well, Luke doesn't bother with that. He cuts that part out. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits. Does y'all have that plural? Yes. Mm -hmm. Fruits. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. 
bear fruits. Matthew. Notice, you know, this is part of that expansion that that Mark doesn't have, but is found in Matthew. And when he says he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, bear fruit, verse eight of Matthew, chapter three, bear fruit, singular, bear fruit worthy of repentance here, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The proximity, the closeness of the wording here, the citations used, the the actual words used even in the grammatical constructions tell us while this is taken from Mark, there's something else too, some other source that Matthew and Luke have in common that's not in Mark, yet covers the same (coughs) material. It's not just oral tradition working here. It's too close. Now, where are we? Is the cue. It's possible. In fact, it's likely that this comes from cue. Cue actually had part of the baptism story. That seems to be likely. Had a bit about John the Baptist in it. We just wonder who of the apostles were there. If Jesus, that's not. We're not, not there. quite there. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're not even close to there yeah, yet. We're not. So now, what was the question you were asking? What we just read yeah. is where Luke. We figure that Q figures. That is that is an example. That's a good example of what Q looks like, yeah. where you have something from Mark. And then you have material that's not in Mark, but which Matthew and Luke both have in common or similar. Very similar. And you see, Matthew has it one way. Luke has it slightly differently. Um, Some things are left out that aren't appropriate to the Lucan community of the Gentile Christians. But the stuff that is, is there. Isn't that interesting? That's a good illustration of what Q is. Even if this doesn't come from Q, I, I think it does. But even if it doesn't come from Q, there's a big debate amongst theologians and, and studies, students of the Bible and Q. There's a question as to whether or not this is Q material because Q is the sayings of Jesus. This isn't Jesus. This is John the Baptist. But even in the John the, John, the Baptist material, you have to have that to start your stuff on Jesus. So it's theorized that, the, that, that Q also started with the baptism of Jesus. And what they're doing is laying down the story of the baptism of Jesus from Mark with the elements of the same story from Q and adding it in. In other words, the version of the baptism of Jesus in Q, or at least the material about John the Baptist in Q, may not have been as complete as what we have in Mark. We just don't know what it said. But we know it contains some of that material here. This speech to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew, which is given to everybody in Luke. Which means that in Luke you then spiritualize the entire thing. It's not a polemic against Jewish leadership. It's a statement to everybody. If you think you do not need to change, you're wrong. 
If you think you don't need to repent, you're wrong. We all do. Makes it easier to take if it's not set within that Jewish context exclusively. Well, that's what we believe, right? I mean, that's what you preach. <laughs> it's what I say, that, that we all have places in our lives that we need to change. Here the question is not, is it people? It's, it's everybody who's involved. Therefore, everybody who needs to have this process done. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. Again, the context is still Jewish. Who's, who's he saying this to? He's saying it to Jews. But he doesn't identify it specifically Pharisees and Sadducees. It's everybody. For I tell you, God is able to raise, raise um, able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? Wow. In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors come to be baptized. And they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. No pillaging, <laughs> certainly no raping. Don't steal from the people that you live among. Notice, this isn't in Matthew. This is, this is here unique to Luke. It's not in Mark. It's here unique to Luke. Let's go back to Mark for a bit. As you can see, it might be helpful when you come to bring a couple of markers to keep in your... I know some of you are already doing it. To keep in your Bibles so that when you can flip back and forth... That becomes easier to do. Fingers help, but then it's Fingers help, but then it's problem is you're trying to take notes. <laughs> yeah. So let's turn back to Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water... Now... That right there is usually interpreted as under and up. But it may mean coming up out of the water as up onto the bank. The context is in no, by no means certain. And the phrasing is by no means determinative. That these mean, this mean, meant that he went underwater and as he was coming up out of the water. That's how the iconography of the church has always depicted it, but it's not necessarily the case. And just, verse 10, and just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. 
And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. The baptism of Jesus. And notice. Who sees this? Just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw. Mark himself. Well, Jesus. Jesus. It's depicted as Jesus. He saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You. So apparently he himself is hearing this. You are my beloved, my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. That 9 through 11 in Mark chapter 1 is the baptism of Jesus. Now, let's compare that with Matthew's rendition. So turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then... Beginning at verse 13, chapter 3 of Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him. Additional stuff to, then that's in Mark. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and, you. and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. None of this is none of this is in Mark. This is all additional to Mark. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So Matthew adds the dialogue between John and Jesus. But essentially the rest is the same. Alright? So Matthew has added just a little bit in the dialogue between John and Jesus. Alright? Questions? Before we skip over to, to Luke? Yes? Yeah, yeah okay. I think I was writing when right. talking Question. about. No problem. Who heard this? You're saying Jesus only heard this. Apparently, well, to assume that it's Jesus only is to go well, one step beyond what the scripture says. What the scripture says is Jesus heard it. It doesn't say other people heard it. It simply says Jesus heard it. It's silent about the rest. It's not that somebody else heard this and is telling this. It's that Jesus hears it. Jesus sees it. That's the important yeah, I mean, part. Here it says the heavens were open to him. Mm-hmm, to and him. He saw the dove. Uh-huh. The other mark says that the heavens were torn. Were ripped apart. Mm-hmm. Torn. Literally, literally split in two. All right? Yeah, in terms of actual word choice. But it's the same thing, same event, clearly. Right. All right, let's go to Luke. Okay, after that additional bit where they ask him what he should do, what they should do, and he, he says, if you're a tax collector, you only collect what you should take. This should be given to every IRS agent. 
And then if you're a military <laughs> fella, don't extort money out of people. Just because you have the ability to do it, don't do it. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, this is after the baptism, and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Now that is fascinating. He's adjusted the sequence. It's, uh, there's a lot of stuff in here from Matthew. He's expanded it. it. It reflects what you find in Matthew. He's expanded it. He's applied it slightly differently. And then when he comes down to the baptism, he, he's got this strange little segment here, 18, 19, and 20, which talks about the arrest of John the Baptist, almost as if it's out of sequence. And then he says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, we don't get to see the baptism of Jesus. Do we? Do we get to see the conversation between Jesus and John the Baptist? No. We don't get to see the baptism. We don't get to see the conversation. We get to see Jesus almost as if he's sitting there on the bank praying. Now, when all the people were baptized, the service is over. When all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form, like a dove. Um, Mark... And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove. So Luke is adding in this interpretive in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved with you. I am well pleased in Luke. It comes to him as within the context of his praying. And he includes with all the people. The people have been baptized already. And of course, the baptizing had been going on in Mark and in Matthew. But the, 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 the dialogue is missing. It's almost as if Luke doesn't know it's there. Now we get interesting stuff from John. And we're not going to go there. But you could read this parallel in John. And if you want to, you can, of course. And it is a fascinating comparison where the question of who gets to hear what is different. But here it's Jesus, clearly, who gets to hear it and gets to see it. All right? Okay. Questions before we, we close out, and I'm going to close it out with a little bit of a preview for next week. Questions? Why do you think that... The baptism of Jesus was such a significant event that it gets repeated in, in each of these Gospels. Even in John. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be connections and, and, and allusions to it and certain references to it even in Q. 
I think because it sets in part by this point in time that Christian community baptism was definitely the ritual act by which you began your life as a Christian. And so there is a connection, therefore, between what... And there, this is true throughout the Gospels and in Christian theology by, by the late first century. This is definitely present. It's present even in Paul earlier on in the century. It's this concept, as Christ, so Christians. Mm-hmm. Hence, as, as Christ was baptized, so also Christians are baptized. There is a question, why was Jesus baptized? And if you take a, there's an answer, interesting answer to that in Matthew... He, in response to this dialogue between him and John the Baptist, in verse 15, let it be so now, and this is in Matthew 3, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. That sounds weird. There's, There's no expectation in Messianic thought that the that the Messiah would have to be baptized in order to begin the new life and certainly he's not living a life in error he's Jesus he's the son of God so he doesn't need to repent of any sins to be baptized why is he being baptized and one theological answer here is to convert the act of baptism from, a, from just a purely Jewish act of cleansing to the Christian act of initiation, hence fulfilling all righteousness. Another understanding, which I actually happen to like, is related to that is to charge up or empower the act of baptism for Christians so that it can become a method by which one enters into Christ Jesus. We have our sins to repent of and and a life to change. Jesus did not, but yet he himself was baptized to set the pattern for us. And in so doing, authorizes its use for us. And that actually, that thought, that thinking seems to be present in the early layers of Christian sacramental thought uh, in the early church father, like Origen talks about it. So you might see that as functional even a little earlier back to Matthew. And if you go even further back, I mean, we, we know that they practiced baptism in Paul's day and, and even before going into the Acts of the Apostles. Baptism, there was, there was the baptism of John the Baptist and then there was the baptism of Christ Jesus. And they were viewed as two separate things, by the way. So that someone who only knows the baptism of John the Baptist would need to be baptized in the name of Jesus in order for it to then be valid as Christian baptism. So there was a noticed difference in the nature of what the experience is. Um, Fascinating question and a difficult one to deal with. You're also dealing with the fact that in the early church, there was a segment of the Christian movement that was really made up of followers of John the Baptist. People who had been followers of John the Baptist, loved his message, really had not been Jesus' people until well after the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And then they got sort of adopted in because there was no place for them in Judaism. And 
there seems to be, and we see this especially in Luke, an adopting almost of the John the Baptist community so that they become sort of adopted in. And therefore, his baptizing Jesus, which otherwise would be problematic, mm-hmm. actually becomes a positive conception. Where did John the Baptist get all his information from? We don't know. It sounds like there's been a lot of family stuff going on they didn't tell us about. Well, we got that. We only hear about his birth and, and whatnot and, and recognition but of him. The stuff they're doing, it's assuming that everybody else already knows it. Yeah. And it's not talked about. That's right. We pick up the story after it's already started. So they must be talking about it somewhere. There's in the family, but also in in the community. People, for some reason, they felt like they could go down and listen to John the Baptist and repent and begin a new life with Yahweh through that act of baptism. Where the heck did that come from? I mean, that's the, it's related to the Bill's question about the authority of John the Baptist to forgive sin. Well, he wasn't forgiving sin, but what's his general authorization or ordination to do any of this besides being the son of Zechariah? And why did he think he had the right to do it? Ah, good question. He's a cousin of Jesus. Cousin of Jesus. Now, that's good for the Christian community. That's, that's good for us. He's related to Jesus, and that's helpful to us. A sign, a harbinger, and, and as the Christians adopt this conception from the Jewish Messianic expectation, he is the embodiment, the manifestation of who? Elijah. Who comes to proclaim the coming Messiah in Jewish expectation of the Messiah. So he gets interpreted to be Elijah. The, the, the manifestation of the forerunner of the Messiah. And hence, that becomes a very important role. I mean, if Jesus is going to be the Messiah, then Elijah has had to have come. Right? So that that's John the Baptist. So... It became a win-win. The John the Baptist community got to be, their head gets to be Elijah. Oh, good. And, and the Jewish community gets to say, yeah, and, he, and that makes Jesus the Messiah. Despite the fact that he doesn't do all the stuff yet that Messiahs are supposed to do. He dies. Messiahs don't die. I mean, in Jewish expectation, that's a real problem. And it's, <clears throat> it seems like... Uh, like we talked about last week, Mary and Joseph, after he was born, Jesus, they didn't even know who he was. <laughs> Almost. And it was, and, uh, she so ponders these things in her heart. She wonders at them. And then it's like she has amnesia. And then she's shocked when this stuff happens again or when they find him in the temple. When they go back to Jerusalem, they should have gone straight to the temple, not gone looking around at the ball fields and at the markets trying to find Jesus. He, he should have not even been in his father's house. And Jesus is shocked. Didn't you know I was supposed to be in my father's house? Yeah, that shoulda, woulda. Shoulda, woulda, I mean, coulda. <laughs> human, here, our humanness. We don't, we don't take in fully what God says. The power that's there. We go, huh? It's an echo. To me, that's what I go. Huh, of the why? humanity, mm-hmm. of yeah. the story. I mean, and just, you know, you're when you have a child that you've seen playing out in the dirt. You've changed mm-hmm. their diapers. You. I mean, do you expect them to be able to be teaching in the temple? Nope. Yeah, I didn't mind. You didn't? <laughs> well, you had special children, no, Wanda. They, 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 <laughs> they, 
pointed it. Oh, you expected it and I they didn't do it. it. I understand. <laughs> I understand. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to follow this pattern from here out. But it's probably not going to be quite as detailed. We'll read from Mark. And then if there's a clear problem or clear issue or clear addition, we'll certainly jump over to Matthew or Luke. And we'll sometimes sample it at this depth as well. But uh, um, this gives you an idea of how they used Mark. This gives you a running illustration of how they use Mark, but there's something else they're quoting. Yeah. And they're interpreting as they quote it and adjusting it to their audience, their need, their interest. And that's what's confusing because you know yeah. it's not the apostles because they weren't there yet. I just wish they would have told, you know, told how, the plain story instead of just jumping around. <laughs> there <laughs> you go. <laughs> um, well, that kind of gets to the difference between or, or the reality of what these books of the Bible are, especially the Gospels, because they're not history books. There's, there's, there's statements of faith. There are persuasions in a way, right? Uh, that give it's it's these writers' way of of saying, I'm a believer and here's why, and I think you ought to be too for these same reasons. Take Mark, and take Mark's origin. If Papias is correct and Mark was Peter's secretary, and Listen to what Peter preached. Then after Peter died, wrote everything that Peter preached down, creating a thematic structure for it, and wrote his gospel based on the preachings of teacher, uh, preachings of Peter. The, um, it makes sense that what he produces in his gospel is in essence a sermon. Not a history book. A sermon that contains historical references about historical people and historical events. But interpreted, applied, uh, theologically examined, and, and all of that's very important. So it's not a straightforward history. It's not a systematic theology. It's, it is a statement of faith. Who this Jesus is. What this Jesus does. And that is... And we read it for that reason. If you read just Mark straight through, you get a nice, straightforward, short, simple, just the facts man kind of approach. When you then have to bounce over to Matthew and Luke, you discover, oh, there's more material here. There's more material here. It's really fascinating, and we'll, we'll experience it. To read a whole chapter of Mark, and nonstop, just straight all the way through. Stop. And then read the parallel, we'll do it next week, and read the parallel in Matthew and the parallel in Luke straight through without examining it in detail. It's amazing both the, the, the identical content and the differences. Are there any final questions? Can you tell us the year approximately that each one of these people wrote Matthew sure. Mark and Luke? Mark, I'll give you the best guess I have. Mark was written in 68. 65 to 70. All right, five-year range. But I just split the difference and say 68. It could have been as late as 72, but probably not. It was probably written before the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD by the Romans and written after the death of 
Peter in 65. So, there you go. Matthew. Matthew was probably written, if you look at the chart that I handed out, Matthew would have been written about 75 to 80. I just stick it at 80. Luke would have been written about 80 to 85. I just say 80. <laughs> but that gives you a five-year range for each of those. Those are all guesswork. It could have been reversed in terms of Matthew and Luke. Uh, I, I tend to put them at the same time. So Mark, I say 68. Matthew, 80. Luke, 80. Jesus died in 30. Actually, 31. So that gives you an idea. And the Q source, about 50, because Paul quotes it. So the teaching source about Jesus is earlier than the Gospels by a couple of decades, at least. You said Q is around 50? My notes say 50 for the Greek version of Q, which Paul quotes in Romans and in 1 Corinthians in various places. But the Aramaic background to it would have gone back even further, probably into the 30s and 40s. The first stuff in the New Testament that we have that was written, the first actual work in the New Testament, there's a debate on this one, but it's probably the, letter, the first letter to the Thessalonians. There's a lot of debate, it depends on who you ask, but if you accept the, the John Knox chronology of the life of Paul, which I accept, the, and that's based on the letters of Paul. If you accept John Knox's chronology of the life of Paul, then the first letter written by Paul was first that we have is First Thessalonians, and that would have been written about forty-nine or fifty. So, so, so Q could be more than one person. I think Q was. I think Q was written by two people. The first, the first, the Aramaic author Matthew. And then the translation into Greek author, i.e. translator. And probably some interpretation, some adjustment, but he's primarily an editor, translator, whoever that was. But that happened before Paul quotes it in Greek. And he quotes it in Greek in the early 50s. So that sets your terminus at quim of when, when it can't be written after. So all of that stuff, the teachings of Jesus had to have been written down in Greek by the very early 50s, which means that its Aramaic original would have been written in the 40s or 30s, which puts it back within the chronological range for the disciples, which I, I'm continually coming back to for people who say this is all written way after the life of Jesus and therefore is all legend made up. Uh-uh. You, you, if you, there's not enough years in there and the people are still alive when some of this stuff was written down. So you, it, it, it's not as far removed. Now, think about it. Jesus died, okay, let's just say, let, died, Jesus died in 31. Matthew was written in 80. That's 50 years. That's 50 years. That's not a long time. Now it's a... Relative to how long people live, it's longer then than now. But there were easily plenty of people who lived longer than that. Lots of people who lived longer than that back then. So it's not that long a period of time. And then behind that period, within that 50-year range, you've got all the letters of Paul. 
about Jesus and about the thinking and faith about Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. And you've got the saying source, which was in existence by 50, cutting the difference between the two. Wow. And that, and there you're only dealing with 20 years. So the people who, and, and Paul himself, and we know this is a fact, people who knew Jesus, some of them, died, many of them died in the 60s. Peter died in the 60s. Paul didn't know Jesus in his life, knew the resurrected Jesus, but knew lots of people who knew Jesus. Paul died in the 60s. James, the brother of the Lord, probably older brother of the Lord, died in the 60s. Some of the other disciples died in the 50s and 60s. And John died in the 90s, if you believe tradition. So you're dealing with a period of time when these Gospels were written. Yeah, most of them come after the time of the disciples. But not that far removed. And their sources definitely come from the time of the disciples. So the current, not so current, but the historic last... 75 years, critical scholarship approach to try to push the difference and claim that there's no connection, I don't think is tenable. I kind of follow N.T. Wright on that approach and, and Johnson on that approach and disagree with Croson and some of the others on that approach. I, I'm not as skeptical as they are. I, I think there's a closer connection between the Gospels and Jesus. And that's another reason why I have a real problem with the, with the attempts to create an historical Jesus from the Gospels. Because the only Jesus I know is the, gospel, is the Jesus of the Gospels. And the theological statements that are made about him, which are as important as anything else that is said about him, that he either did or said. And, that, and, and interestingly, if you examine... Jesus as depicted in the Pauline letters, his character, his nature, what Paul says he said in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, and then what he says about him and the character of the faith that Paul lives and that Paul is articulating to Gentiles for them to live. And you compare it with the kind of life Jesus called his disciples to live in the Gospels. There's an amazing continuity. So yes, it's theologically interpreted. Yes, it's theologically applied. And at the same time, there's a continuity there. A strong one. Just as there had to be a continuity between the church in Rome and the church in Greece and the church in Antioch and the church in Egypt for them all to share some of these same sources and write their gospels. So I'm, I'm not nearly the skeptic that some of New Testament scholarship is today on on the Jesus of the Bible not being connected with the Jesus of history, whatever that is. Um, to me, I only the only Jesus I know is the Jesus of the Bible. Any other, I mean, I don't know where that sermon came from. Any other questions? I think it's because I've been reading some material from some of the, of the critical scholarship recently in preparing for this study. And I'm being reminded again and again and again. What are they calling Jesus of history? The historical Jesus. It's not the one in the Bible. They say that you can find out about the historical Jesus by taking the Gospels and sifting through them and determining the things that he most likely said and removing from the compendium of what is applied to him, the red words, 
the things that he almost certainly didn't say, and then determining based upon that then what kind of person he was. And they used certain criteria of exclusion to, to take out the stuff that was glommed on and added to by people of faith later. And the Jesus Seminar is a good example of this. So they have a certain set of criteria by which they judge the sayings of Jesus. And then they say, Jesus certainly said it. Jesus probably said it. Jesus said something kind of like this. Jesus definitely didn't say it. And they then judge the sayings of Jesus based upon those the various criteria that they use to, ju- to, to determine the differences. And so you get some things that are red, some things that are pink, some things that are yellow, some things that are black. And... So much of it's black and or yellow, and I have a real problem with that because, well, what if your criteria are wrong? And how do you know that that faith that you are saying produced the saying of Jesus? How do you know that that faith wasn't itself produced by the saying? Uh, and there are other examples of, of problems I had with the criteria that they use. Um, I've gone through, I've, I've taken part in a class in New Testament studies in undergraduate school where we did an historical Jesus reconstruction. And everybody's historical Jesus looked just like the kind of person that they wanted him to be. Uh-huh. I'm serious. Just like the person that they set out to find is the Jesus they found. And that tells me there's something wrong with the criteria that we and you see that in every single historical Jesus recreation done by New Testament scholars today. The historical Jesus they find is the one they set out to find. To me, that's a circular reconstruction. Go back to what the Bible says about who Jesus was and is. Yeah, there are certain judgment calls you have to make in terms of how the Gospels articulate what Jesus said, but you still got to deal with it. You just can't ignore it because you you don't like it. Or it presents a kind of Jesus that doesn't fit with the expectations that you think you should have. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal. Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.